Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 28th of September 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Garish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, breaking the law is good, apparently, Mike. Uh, uh, absolutely. A uh, new bill going through Parliament at the moment. It's had its first reading at the end of the last week. This is the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Criminal Conduct Bill 2019 to 21. Uh, it's been sponsored by Priti Patel. Uh, and uh, well, what's it saying? Uh, here we go. A bill to make provision for and in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of covert human intelligence sources. Uh, so in other words, anybody working as an undercover, uh, undercover informant for the police or a whole bunch of other organizations, we'll come on to that in one second. Uh, the, this uh, bill does not specify which crimes can be committed. Uh, some MPs apparently suggesting that maybe murder is a bit far uh, and you don't want to, you maybe needs to have a clause inside the bill that, that, that actually prohibits that. Uh, serious violence is another one that some MPs are suggesting uh, might be needed to be prohibit, prohibited explicitly, but we don't need to worry because uh, uh, Ken McCallum, the new director of General of MI5, has said that agents working deep undercover uh, have played a critical role in stopping many of the 27 terror plots that have been uncovered in the last three years without the contribution of human agents being no doubt many of these attacks would not have been prevented and then james brokenshire who's the uh, security minister uh, said that there are built-in guarantees here uh, this is a critical capability and subject it's subject to robust independent oversight just like the investigatory powers tribunal no doubt uh, it is uh, important that those with the responsibility to protect the public can continue this work knowing that they're on sound legal footing so you know first of all i i just wondered whether the the permission to, to be uh, you know violent potentially seriously violent uh, might be introduced to to for example demonstrations that are taking place in Trafalgar Square, which we'll be coming on to in a second. So let's just briefly have a look at uh, which organisations are allowed to authorise this criminality under the terms of this bill, which we make the point has only had its first reading. Plenty of time for everybody to get involved in maybe giving Stopping their input it. into this. Uh, so any police force can authorise criminality. Uh, the National Crime Agency, uh, the Serious Fraud Office, any of the intelligence services, any of Her Majesty's Forces, uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the Department of Health and Social Care, uh, the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, aren't they supposed to be preventing crime? But anyway, they're encouraging it now. Uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, uh, the Environment Agency, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency, and the Gambling Commission. Um, so, David, let's welcome you to the programme and just ask very briefly, why on earth would the Gambling Commission or the Co Competition and Markets Authority be need, need to be uh, authorising criminality? Why would they even need to have undercover agents? Well, yes, and HMRC as well. There are many, many ways which uh, HMRC can use to trap people just by the sheer complexity of the rules. Do they need to lie and break the law to do it? Really? Very strange. Although I would point out that uh, standard police practice uh, has for many years been to lie and deceive people into incriminating themselves. And that alone is uh, is breaking breaking the law as, uh, as I would see it. So I'm not sure that this necessarily does anything more that, than uh, 
firms up best practice, as our wise overlords would say. Uh, well, I, I think this one's I think this one's pretty clear. A couple of people in the, the chat box have just said this is insane. And what the hell is this? Um, what do I think it is? I think this is the go ahead to create utter breakdown in the UK. If all these agencies are going to be involved in criminal activity, then that's it. You've succeeded in creating total breakdown of discipline and law and order in the UK. And it's been done by the government. Uh, well, of course, uh, it, sorry, sorry, Dave, just before I bring you back on, uh, you know, the, the police have been criticised in recent, in the last couple of years for, for uh, people forming relationships, getting women pregnant and so on while they've been undercover. Uh, but, but what this effectively does, David, it seems is, is legalise illegal activity um, because they've been caught with their pants down in the past. This is exactly my point. Yeah, the, the, there's, there's a in many areas, including in the protection of children, there's a move towards to eliminating the sort of scandals we've had in the past by simply making the things which were scandalous before and legal and finding a way of making them authorised. Uh, and I wonder if we've got uh, violence and murder is, is potentially in the range. Uh, how, about a, how about a little bit of light treason? Do you think that would be permitted as well? Uh, <laughs> well, I think it has been because that, that's ultimately what's allowing this to uh, be driven through the country. Now, of course, uh, on Saturday in Trafalgar Square, there was a peaceful protest up to a point. Uh, let's just have a look at a couple of images. And thank you very much to the, the, the people that sent uh, these through to us. Uh, you'll be safer. Media distancing than social distancing is one of the messages. Glad to see somebody there with a, a UK column news uh, poster. That's very uh, very good, uh, and uh, more and more it goes on. Um, but of course, it didn't end peacefully, David. And so we start off with uh, with uh, some communications that you have had here from somebody. Yes, this is uh, an eyewitness account. Um, the person wrote, the steps were suddenly full of screaming hysterical women falling over each other. Blood was on the ground. Decent people were savage with batons. As the police entered from the flanks in a classic pincer movement, the PA system was toppled and the tent and podium upturned likewise. And he goes on, some of the plainclothes officers pushed into the crowd to facilitate an opening into the mass and a number of these Romeos made flamboyant gestures to the camera in order to give the effect of violent resistance to the police. And a further comment from the same person, what is not readily available in the footage taken by some bystanders of the of the lead up to the police organized rush into the crowd it reminded me of the all blacks before the rugby match with aggressive stance and brutish roars with gestures where they hit their own hands with their batons rhythmically in some sort of intimidation ritual but that's what you get now if you protest peacefully to demand that your rights be respected by your government and pretty horrific it is. Of course, they do beat the um, the batons in order to intimidate. That's exactly what it is. So we'll call it a ritual. Um, we had other material coming into the column. This one uh, interested me. This is uh, basically an email, but somebody picked up on a tweet where somebody said, I used to work for the police, the ones that joined the TSG. Now, we were having a debate as to whether that's tactical support 
group or territorial support group we think it's territorial but uh, please correct us if if uh, you know otherwise the ones that join the TSG and the other public order units do so because it allows them to crack heads with impunity they love it so maybe that was a bit of an explanation uh, there David but we're going to be hearing a bit more about this and um, yeah so so it goes on we have uh, we have more uh, communications here dear UK column I emailed you last week to say among other things that I agreed with your advice on people attending protests to to treat the police like fellow human beings I still agree uh, however atten after attending the protest in London on Saturday I'm not sure what to think or feel the protest rally went very well there was a wonderful atmosphere people were in good spirits uh, and the protest couldn't have been more peaceful speakers made it clear that the police were not our enemy but our friends a minute's silence was held for the police officer who was killed a few days before and I saw many protesters having friendly chats with the police on the concourse in front of the National Gallery throughout the day and before we go on with this David that is a very key point uh, people were there was a minute silence held for the policeman that was shot uh, in the police station last week uh, and it was pretty clear that people were being as friendly to the police as anybody could be yes a minute silence and a prayer for him and and his and his family who who were bereaved and uh it was very touching and uh, the crowd joined in wholeheartedly with that so it, it was clear that they were not there to start trouble with the police they were looking for um to, well, they were looking for peace uh, absolutely the email here goes on at one point i left trafalgar square to get some lunch as i walked back at about 2 p.m I noticed lots of police vans arriving and parking in a side road between Leicester Square and Trafalgar Square. Then just after 3 p.m. as a German doctor had begun his speech, lines of police, not the ones the crowd had been speaking to earlier in the day it seems, started moving in on the crowd from both sides of the concourse. We couldn't make it out and there was no reason whatsoever for this aggressive provocative behaviour. Turned out the protesters were not socially distancing so the police had decided to close the protest down. This seemed like a planned attack on the protest. The police officers had no intention of treating uh, protesters like human beings. Uh, they pushed and shoved people without provocation, hit people with batons, and I saw three men with bloody faces who said they'd been hit by police. These men were clearly not thugs. Uh, I've since seen footage of a woman being pushed to the ground by police. Now, of course, uh, some of the footage ended up in the Daily Mail of this, uh, but uh, this one is absolutely clear as this lady not really sure exactly what age she is but she's clearly not a thug uh, and the treatment of that woman was just atrocious uh, and i'm not really certain david how you possibly justify that well you can't uh, you can't if you're a police force uh, if you're something else if you're operating to intimidate people into uh, to enforce some sort of edict from a from a state that no longer represents the people then you can but that's not policing Let's be quite clear. That's law breaking. Uh, they're no longer standing under law. They've abandoned the law. Yeah. OK, well, look, we will be coming on to what policing is in a little bit. Uh, but then the email goes on in contrast to police behavior at BLM extinction. Rebellion protest is striking. Uh, and of course, uh, we should remember the headlines at the time. It is absolutely striking, the contrast. Uh, but then uh, she goes on, so I'm really not sure how we handle this. Keep protesting, stay peaceful, review, refuse to be provoked, I guess. But I think uh, things are going to get very nasty in the future and not because of the protesters. Um, so, David, I'm just interested in your 
Thoughts on that last question? It's an excellent question. There's no easy answer. Um, we we want to protest. People want to go out and express their views, but um, they cannot be expected to stand there and be truncheoned in the head. The red zone. This is going to kill someone. It's just a matter of time, um, and and not and not resist and not fight back. And yet, if 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 violence takes place, then the police will escalate it. Firearms will be used. It might it might turn. Almost anything could happen. Uh, so really, unless there are overwhelming numbers, uh, it's not safe to to protest in this manner. Um, I don't think there's any round answer to how we go about this as a society. But I would simply say that it's necessary for people to resist a little bit in everything they do every day, because this is tyranny and it has to be resisted has to be resisted. Well, I picked up on um, some emails as well. Let's just have a look at this one. I was at the protest on Saturday and writing to express my concern at the use of riot priests to break up what was a peaceful rally and expressing concern over the way our government is negatively impacting our democratic rights to free speech. I was there at 11am and it was a very good natured rally with local police, bell shaped hats, joking and discussing the issues with groups, no violence or aggression on either side. Uh, there was a very sincere sign stating blue lives matter. So we get, we're getting reinforcement of what was actually going on and we can see that this was peaceful. The email continues. It was noticeable around three, the local police had withdrawn and then there was a charge by riot police into the crowd. I couldn't see the reason for this. If police were hurt, it could be because the way they charged into the crowd. I don't have any issues with the police in the charging group, but with those giving the orders, that's who needs to be held accountable for the injuries sustained by protesters and police. And I'm writing to express my concern at the use of riot police to break up the rally. I was with a group of Seventh Day Adventists giving out Bibles, our backs to the portrait gallery. Riot police came up behind us and I held up a Bible saying we were being peaceful handing out Bibles. I could see how agitated the police officers were bulging eyes, manic looking. We're going to come on to this point again in a minute because people commented on the eyes of the police. Uh, but I was interested in the end of this one. Steve says, this is the first rally I've attended and I would encourage more people to attend after seeing what happened firsthand on Saturday. Let's peacefully save our democracy. So David, I think that's right that there's persistency there. We've got to stay on the case and we can't give in because elements of, of the police have caused trouble. But we've also got some interesting deeper comments that have come in from our viewers. Let's see whether we can bring these up on screen. And uh, what have we got? Well, the original key police were fine, polite and helpful to organisers, speakers and the public. And we're going to say this fits with the fact that the political demonstration had been approved by the authorities themselves. Later on, other police moved in on the speaker's tent, but apparently they were stopped by the public near the tent who simply challenged them and contested um, what they believed was the police aim. And that was to disrupt and or arrest speakers. Some speakers apparently left at that point. Later, police were to box up and remove all of the comprehensive public address and sound desk equipment. The thuggish police who charged into the crowd were very aggressive, 
but also described as having wild staring eyes. Now, this did not come from one person. We've had several reports of this. One description was bulging eyes, manic looking. Another description was that these men looked scared. So what can we gain? Well, several people have described that many of the aggressive police looked as though they were East European in appearance. Their physical appearance was not the same as other people first observed at the event. Many of them were very young. Uh, former police constables have commented that a significant number of Greater Manchester police were present. They considered this was to cover shortages in the Met who were under Im immense pressure with continuing protests and many officers were, have simply been sent home as part of COVID-19 measures. Um, they also said uh, that the fear in the faces of the young aggressive police groups was probably due to their inexperience and or lack of training. But former police were saying, well, actually, who were these young police and where have they come from? They were unsure. Um, former police also remarked on the as yet unsubstantiated reports of paramilitary police or troops patrolling with some elements of Greater Manchester Police. Now, maybe that's becoming clearer because we we have had reports that uh, troops have been on the streets with Greater Manchester Police. So were these British military? We think so. And one member of the public has asked whether recent migrants to UK, all fit young men with no women and children accompanying them, and some of whom have been housed in former military barracks and accommodation, whether these people could be being used as marshals or special constables. Now, the former police we're talking to have got no confirmation of that, but certainly there's some interesting questions being raised as to who these police were. David, it's clear that there were two different styles of policing. The police at the start of the event were all very normal. And then we get these brutish people coming in. Um, so were they given the training to come in in that way? Or was this a local political decision, get in there and rough up the protesters? Training or no training, this has to have been a political decision. There's no way that that happened without the mayor, at the very least, and Christina Dick having signed off on that. Nobody, nobody's going to charge in in front of the, the full glare of publicity in Trafalgar Square and, and, and beat the living daylights out of peaceful protesters, men, women and children, without orders. And those orders had to come from a high level. Um, agree completely with that. Let's just have a look at what the Mayor of London's website has to say. So this is what you get if you go to that website and a nice picture of Trafalgar Square. This is what Sadiq Khan says on that website. Trafalgar Square is a centre of national democracy and protest. Rallies and demonstrations are frequently held at weekends on different political, religious and general issues. The mayor supports this democratic tradition and gives access to the square for such clauses. Well, remarkable then that when people obey his democracy, they're smashed to the ground by police. But of course, it's not just Sadiq Khan with a finger in the pie, because we also need to look at this lady, Sophie Linden. She's the London deputy mayor with particular responsibility for policing and crime. Very interesting lady, earns a whopping 
£1,513 per year, former Hackney councillor, former deputy mayor of Hackney, a special advisor to the Home Office, so we can imagine she's got a finger directly into the policing pie, special advisor formerly to David Blunkett, well, a lot of questions there, um, local government association member, also been involved with HMIC Peel, which is some sort of review into the effectiveness, efficiency and legitimacy of the police. Um, she's a child poverty campaigner, apparently, and has worked in the private sector in public affairs. So both the mayor and Sophie Linden as deputy mayor, we need to be challenging as to why did they allow this brutal police behaviour? But of course, the prize has got to go to this woman, Cressida Dick, because she holds resp ultimate responsibility for the Met Police. And therefore, she's got to hold ultimate responsibility when the police punch a middle-aged woman to the ground. And lots of questions about Cressida Dick. Uh, we just remind people that she was specially chosen and given accelerated promotion as a constable. Why, we don't know. Uh, she became superintendent of Thames Valley Police at a time when that police force was uh, under suspicion of uh, corruption and the hiding of child abuse. Uh, she was a specially selected common purpose matrix leader. Uh, she's a master of philosophy and criminology, that's useful. Head of diversity directorate, also useful. Gold commander for the death of uh, Jean-Charles de Menenzes. And of course, as a result of his brutal death, she was actually promoted. BBC regards her as one of the 100 most powerful women in UK. And uh, she did an unspecified director general job in the Foreign Office, unspecified. So some secret, maybe she was authorising criminal activity, Mike. Uh, Dame Commander, Order of the British Empire. So you do all that, your police behave in a brutal way on the streets and you're rewarded. We should be encouraging, David, I would suggest, for people to contact those individuals in a polite, measured way. So Cressida Dick, um, Sadiq Khan and his number two. And people should be challenging them on the brutality of the police at that demonstration. Sadiq Khan, I was very struck by him saying he gives access to Trafalgar Square. Who exactly does Sadiq Khan think he is? Um, this country and the people in it and their ancestors built that square and also built the tradition that says we can go in there and protest and speak our minds. It's not for him to give or withhold that right. Um, <laughs> well, couldn't say it better. So I would just say there is a good point for you, for you to put in a letter or an email to Sadiq Khan. But if we want to deal with the situation and ensure the right to peaceful protest, we need to hold these people to account. And that means every minute of every day. Um, now, let's just remind ourselves, because uh, many people don't appreciate the basis upon which we are supposed to be policed in this country. So let's uh, go to the founder of the modern uh, police force, Robert Peel, and look at the nine principles of policing attributed to him. The basic mission for which the police exists is to prevent crime and disorder. The ability of the police to perform their duties is dependent upon public approval of police actions. Police must secure the willing cooperation of the public in voluntary observance of the law to be able to secure and maintain the respect of the public. 
the degree of cooperation of the that the public uh, can be secured, sorry, of the public that can be secured diminishes proportionally to the necessity of the use of physical force. Uh, police seek and preserve public favour not by catering to public opinion, but by constantly demonstrating absolute impartial service to the law. Uh, police use physical force to extend necessary uh, to the extent necessary to secure observance of the law or to restore order only when the exercise of persuasion, advice and warning is found to be insufficient. Police at all times should maintain a relationship with, with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. And the police should always direct their actions strictly towards their functions and never appear to usurp the powers of the judiciary. And finally, the test of police efficiency is the absence of crime and disorder, not the visible evidence of police action in dealing with it. And uh, David, uh, I would have said that there are not too many of those principles that were on exhibition by the second lot of police, the tactical support, or sorry, the territorial support unit uh, in this case. Uh, certainly it looks like Many, if not all, of those uh, principles were being exercised by the uh, police that were initially on the scene. Yes, and the first article you, you covered, with, which was the, the Act, the bill which is now going through Parliament to allow official criminality, is of the same ilk. Um, that if we're sufficiently frightened, we will surrender all of our liberties and we, we will allow the police to actually engage in criminality to save us from uh, harm and to protect the greater good. We just need to be frightened enough, Mike. Uh, yes. Now, uh, just before we move on from this, well, we're, we're going to come on to one other topic with respect to the protests on Saturday, but uh, just a, a brief reminder to everybody that the emergency coronavirus legislation is going through Parliament for its renewal on Wednesday. Uh, and I would suggest that people need to be uh, making it clear to their MPs what they expect uh, with respect to that. Uh, but David, uh, at least one arrest uh, at the weekend. Yes, Dr. Heiko Schoening, uh, a, a doctor who has been campaigning, German doctor who has been campaigning uh, very extensively on um, matters relating to COVID and to liberty. Um, he's been speaking alongside uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., for example. Um, he came over to speak. And uh, he was speaking in Trafalgar Square and at uh, um, Hyde Park, Speaker's Corner, the uh, the place most associated with freedom of speech. And there he was arrested um, and held for around a day. And it's a, a, a little quote of what he had to say when he was released. It's it's not entirely perfect English because he's this is a, a verbatim quote of what he said, and he is a, a German speaker. Uh, but he said as follows, think of the year 2008, the financial crash. The financial system is dominating everything and this system crashed and it was clear who the perpetrators were, the banks and the private owners. And did we heal the system? No, we did not. And he continues, they put much more money into this, uh, in this insane financial system and they bought time. Everybody's uh, told this, now we have 2020 and it looks like they have a plan a great um, a great reset uh, and this great reset which is the title of the World Economic Forum in 2021 uh, is the great reset of the financial system so it has nothing to do with this medical thing but who to blame um, uh, but who's to blame 2008 it was clear that banks and the private owners now they blame a virus 
a coronavirus and that's the whole thing. So please wake up and please align and think of mankind. Think of we are a family of mankind and be peaceful and go to your neighbors, go to your family, just inform. So he's he's making an extremely astute point that the, the medical explanation for all this tyranny just doesn't make any sense. The level of threat's nowhere near enough. It can't justify it. We are being conned. That, that, that raises the question, why? And he's pointing to the banking system and the need for the Great Reset. And I think that's a very interesting line of inquiry. Certainly is. Would agree with that. And uh, by the usual UK column coincidence, over the weekend I had a, um, an email in, and this is a result of me asking our viewers and listeners what's behind it all. We have our own ideas, but we're prompting for people to think. This came in from New Zealand. It said, I'm a retired science teacher in Nelson, New Zealand. While it's pretty obvious what's going on, the reasons why it's happening are less clear, so I'd like to offer some pointers. I believe the fundamental driver is the fact we're nearing the end of the economic growth, the source of income for the central bankers. The banks make their living by lending, but people and corporations will not borrow unless they're confident they can repay the, repay the capital and interest, i.e. if the economy is growing. There isn't just enough space to give the evidence that growth is coming to an end. Uh, he's uh, The um, author of this piece is saying that to me, really. There just isn't enough space to give the evidence that growth is coming to an end. But if you like, I could do that in a separate email. Suffice to say that the globalists have hitherto kept people under control by offering the fruits of growth more faster. So when growth stops, there will be civil disorder on a cosmic scale. Governments must know this and be preparing new tools for control of which COVID is the main one. Best wishes from a Martin. So I thought that was a very astute comment and interesting. That seems to agree with what we're getting from a very astute German doctor. Um, now, last week, uh, Boris, of course, gave his, uh, his speech there, his uh, announcement to the nation. And one of the things he said, as we highlighted on uh, Wednesday's programme last week, was we will put more police on the streets and use the army to backfill if necessary. Well, it turns out that this, uh, this, of course, he was presenting this in the form of uh, Operation Temper, which is all about putting uh, army uh, into roles that armed police would be for guard duty and so on, allowing those police to be used on front lines. Uh, and the idea here was that the army would not be on the front lines visible. Uh, that's not quite how it's going. Uh, so here's a report from Birmingham Live. Army called in to support door-to-door -door testing in Birmingham's COVID hotspots. So what are they talking about here? They're saying military personnel are set to take to the streets in Birmingham to help to support door-to-door -door testing in coronavirus hotspots. Birmingham City, City Council and the Ministry of Defence are in talks to finalise the details. Uh, an announcement is expected next week. Army personnel will, hope council leaders, come to the city to support the public health team's efforts to root out asymptomatic carriers. What root out means isn't specified. Uh, root out asymptomatic carriers of the virus in areas with large infection clusters. At the moment, some 50, 500 City Council staff have been seconded to the doorstep testing initiative, uh, but that's not sustainable, said City Council Deputy Leader, Councillor Bridget Jones. Um, well, in fact, this door-to-door uh, -door testing uh, began back in August, uh, drop and collect. So the, the Army, at least, it's not clear whether they are going any further than just helping with deliveries and collections. But the idea here is that they de deliver self-administered tests uh, door to door to houses and they come back 
an hour later to collect the, uh, the samples. Um, but David, it seems to me that the optics here aren't too good uh, because what we're doing is normalizing uh, seeing the military on the streets on a day-to-day -day basis. This is a problem. This is a problem with being a little bit pregnant. It doesn't really work that way. You either have the military uh, on the streets interacting with the public or you don't. There's not really a middle ground. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's move on then to, uh, to more legislation. And this, this has just been uh, uh, well passed. Uh, this is uh, a statutory instrument. Now, of course, this is secondary legislation. It's not primary legislation. Uh, and so it probably got a nod and a wink and a funny handshake to, to the speaker or something. And, and it's gone through without too much uh, co commentary. But uh, David, what is all this about with the 2020 well, number 1045 statutory instrument? Well, this is the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions Self-Isolation England Regulations 2020. Rolls off the tongue. Um, made at 5pm on Sunday the 27th, laid before Parliament the 28th, coming into force at 12am. Is that midnight or noon? I'm not quite sure. Uh, 28th of September 2020. So it, it certainly went through very quickly, laid in the, laid. Be, laid down on a Sunday and passed on the Monday and immediately into uh, into effect. Now, what does it mean? Well, um, if you're notified um, that you have tested positive for COVID-19 or that you have been in close contact with someone who has, uh, you must self-isolate for 14 days. So part one explains this and um, it then goes on to various other things, including what's an offence. Um, and uh, the offences and uh, carry with them, well, fixed penalty notices is interesting. It's not a fine because it's not in, administered by a court. You're just asked to agree to your fixed penalty notice. Starts at a thousand pounds, goes up to 10 grand. These are quite heavy notices. These would be catastrophic sums for probably most families in the UK. So they've, they've got the, the, the level of, um, pseudo fines, obviously no courts involved, set at a crippling level for most people to ensure compliance. So we're not pretending that we're persuading anyone anymore. It's uh, pure coercion. Uh, absolutely. So if that's the, the details in the legislation itself, let's look at what the government press release had to say. Uh, it said fines will also be introduced from today for those breaching self-isolation rules starting at £1,000 in line with the existing penalty for breaking quarantine after international travel. Uh, this could increase up to £10,000 for repeat offences and the most serious breaches, including for those preventing others from self-isolating. So that includes if you require your staff to come into work, for example. If someone is instructed to self-isolate by NHS test and trace because they've had close contact with someone outside their household who has tested positive, they are legally required to self-isolate for the period notified by NHS test and trace. So that's one statement from NHS Test and Trace, but they follow up with this. Users of the official NHS COVID-19 contact tracing app are anonymous, and we cannot force them to self-isolate or identify them if they're not self-isolating. The app will advise a user to self-isolate if they've come into close contact with someone who's tested positive for coronavirus. Users should follow that advice to protect their loved ones and stop the spread of the virus. So again, David, uh, this whole business of 
you know, on one hand, making it a, make, making a statutory instrument, putting into law the 14 days, putting into law the fines, and then they give other information that they can't force, that we can't force anyone to self-isolate or identify them uh, on the basis of, of the, the track and trace app, which they say themselves is the core of the NHS test and trace regime. It, it all just seems typically schizophrenic. It does indeed. And the, the uh, ex exemption for the app is uh, specifically mentioned in the legislation. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not included uh, in the uh, requirement to isolate for 14 days. Okay, well, this is what Matt Hancock said. Anyone can catch coronavirus and anyone can spread it. And for that's the first lie, really, isn't it? Because not anyone, because some people have already had it and there's no evidence yet that anybody has presented that shows that people can spread it twice. Uh, but any, anyone can catch it, anyone can spread it, he claims. Uh, he said, we all have a cru crucial part to play in keeping the number of new infections down and protecting our loved ones. But uh, do we know how many new infections there are as opposed to the number of new positive tests there are? Uh, no, we don't. So this is more nonsense from him. Pretty Patel, uh, Home Secretary, of course, had this to say. Uh, for those who fail to self-isolate, the police will enforce the new law. Uh, and she said uh, we will not allow those who break the rules to reverse the hard-won progress we made by the law-abiding majority. And so this was taken by the Daily Mail uh, to mean that uh, the police would start home checks uh, and they are quoting, uh, they're saying in this article, the police will be used to check compliance with the rules uh, and will, will investigate uh, claims by informers. Uh, we're not clear whether those are informers that have broken the law or not, but anyway, they will investigate claims by informers that a person who should be in quarantine is flouting the requirement. So uh, there are a host of issues there, Brian, um, but we are really being turned into a Stasi state. Well, we, we are. 40% of the way there, Mike, it's now happening unbelievably quickly. I mean, people in the comments are talking about martial law in, in the United Kingdom. They're talking about similarities with Germany. They're talking about the speed of it. A fine of £10,000 is going to wipe out the average family. No questions about that. Bankrupt, destitute. And this stuff's just being driven in by the day. This is a government of occupation. David, it was your expression. You were absolutely spot on. There's, there's been a coup in this country and we have what? We have very dangerous political criminals running the, the country. That's how it seems to me. And they're using words that they, that they don't understand, words like law, and, and they are confusing this with unlawful rules and regulations that they bring in in 24 hours. The law has a much deeper meaning than that. Um, they cannot create law. And ultimately, that's the, that's the lie we've allowed to exist for so long that's been used now to enslave us. Now, Francis Hoare, uh, QC, writing uh, on Twitter about this, uh, commented as follows. He said, not just following a positive test, following close contact with someone who has had one. This is a deprivation of liberty that does not fall within the exception, exception to Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights. It is also false imprisonment. Um, and he goes on uh, to comment further. He says, uh, this is thus yet another unlawful use of the Public Health Act to impose the most far-reaching deprivations of human rights, made more sinister by the fact that it's published only hours before it's it is to come into force. Uh, 
uh, and he concludes it is not possible to consider this country a functioning liberal democracy. It has not been for some time. Yeah. I think that's indisputable now. Um, absolutely. Uh, now, David, uh, this this next article uh, was published about a week ago. I didn't see it until uh, the weekend, uh, but this is quite spectacular. Uh, if Channel Four News is correct, uh, their headline is "Reveal Local Authority Calls on Care Home Providers to Accept COVID Possible Hospital Cases." Does this not? Uh, you can tell us more about this, but but on first glance, this. This seems to suggest that we are in dire need now of an inquiry into the first lockdown, uh, because if they're attempting to repeat this uh, murdering of, of uh, and I don't think that's too strong a word no, in this no, case, of, of the elderly, um, this, this can't be allowed to happen this winter. Yes, I mean, the, the, what happened was that, that people with respiratory infections were seated into the care homes and simultaneously all medical support was removed from the care homes and do not resuscitate notices were applied to basically the entire care home population. And as a result, there was a massive spike in care home deaths. This is hardly a surprise. This is not a COVID related thing. This is a policy related thing. And to and certain countries where there's more sanity like Sweden recognize they got this badly wrong. And if we're seriously looking at doing the same thing again, it is absolutely appalling. Uh, Professor Adam Gordon told Channel 4 News that discharging patients from hospital into care homes was accelerating and escalated in the early months of the pandemic and it could happen again in line with the latest UK government guidance. So that's, that's a, that gives lie to any suggestion that the UK government guidance or any other guidance coming from any other branch of government in this country has anything to do with protecting people. No, tens of thousands of elderly people literally killed off. And of course, what did the government gain? Well, it saved on the pension pot. So it's pretty easy to follow this one through. But the figure that was being reported in some parts of the press earlier on in the year is over 40,000 elderly people killed off. And of course, there will be more if they do it a second time because those elderly people are in worse health because they've been literally locked down in care homes mm. and nursing homes and they've been cut off largely from family visits. So, so this is orchestrated genocide is what's going on here. We've got martial law. We can see that very clearly. Now we are deliberately killing off uh, thousands of elderly people. This is a very, very dangerous government in power. Uh, now, uh, over the weekend, uh, Boris is speaking at the United Nations General Assembly. That's taking place at the moment. Um, and uh, well, as you would expect, he wasn't there in person because, of course, he couldn't be. Uh, and uh, so he did it by video link. Uh, now, the main focus this year was COVID-19, uh, and he seemed to be sticking to the main topic of the day, unlike last year, uh, when, if you remember, the main topic of the day was Brexit, but he decided that he would speak about AI and anti-vaxxers in his General Assembly speech. This year he was sticking on uh, on COVID-19 and he had an announcement to make, so let's uh, have a listen to that. We're already the biggest single donor to the efforts of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness to find a vaccine. And it is precisely because we know that no one is safe until everyone is safe that I can announce that the UK will contribute up to £571 million to COVAX, a new initiative designed to distribute a COVID vaccine 
across the world. Of this sum, £500 million will be for developing countries to protect themselves. So £500 million for developing countries to protect themselves. I suspect they would be better protecting themselves if they didn't take a single penny of that. But anyway, uh, this is COVAX. It's, being, it's launched under uh, Gavi, uh, which is the Vaccine Alliance. So Gavi is co-leading COVAX, uh, the vaccine's pillar. Uh, this is an interesting term, pillar. I'd like to know where this came from because in the UK we talk about pillar one and pillar, testing, pillar two testing uh, with respect to this, but the vaccine's pillar of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator. Uh, this involves coordinating the COVAX facility, a global risk sharing mechanism uh, for pooled procurement and equitable distribution of eventual COVID-19 vaccines. So they're very concerned that uh, third world countries won't be able to afford to pay the big pharmaceutical companies for the uh, vaccines that are going to be made available. Uh, and so in order to make sure that there's a big enough market for those vaccines, uh, Western first world countries are going to are, have set up COVAX to make sure that, uh, that those vaccines are made available equitably, however that is, uh, across the world. Um, and uh, well, here is Seth Berkeley, the uh, CEO of Gavi, uh, saying COVAX is now in business. Uh, we now stand a far better chance of ending the acute phase of this pandemic once safe, effective vaccines become available. So again, uh, we're only getting out of this acute phase of the pandemic once the vaccines become available. I wonder, David, what the next phase is past the acute phase. It's not going to end, is it? Because look at what Boris said. No one is safe until everyone is safe. Um, I, he's either extremely stupid he, or himself is frightened beyond his wits or he's just trying to deceive people. I leave it to you to decide which it is. Um, that statement is ridiculous. Because if you, if, you, if you apply that logically, everything is prohibited and the state rules in every aspect of our lives permanently and forever. Yeah, all, all I can add to it is we're constantly and over uh, many recent years, we're constantly told that we've got to be fearful. We can't actually get out of bed in the morning and go through our lives. We've got to be fearful of something. And we're really only safe if we stop thinking and allow the government to think for, for us, us and to protect us. Yeah. And of course, the government, the British government in particular, is the last body that anyone should allow to think for them or to claim to protect them. Um, and sticking with vaccines then, David, what's the Cochrane Library saying about flu vaccines? Well, this is, this is a study that was cited by a, a Ministry of Defence circular explaining why we're not going to be vaccinating all of the armed forces for flu. And it cited this study, which is very recent, 2016, and it concluded, quote, vaccination may have little or no appreciable effect on hospitalizations or number of working days lost. This was in the context of what happens when you vaccinate otherwise healthy people against influenza. So the summary is, it does nothing. Um, it's a little bit puzzling, therefore, since that's a government document being cited by the Ministry of Defence, that the government's also deciding to vaccinate a lot more healthy people. Here we see a government press release. Most comprehensive flu programme in UK history will be rolled out this winter. Why? It also why is because the flu vaccine actually increases your susceptibility to other respiratory infections such as COVID-19. This seems to be, again, completely incoherent if protecting the people is the objective. 
If actually causing chaos and fear for other reasons is the objective, then it makes perfect sense. Well, just bringing this one, a very poignant um, email sent through. We'll read it directly. Hello, Brian, a story about a middle-aged man who lived in the same town as me. Sadly, he committed suicide recently by hanging himself because of the present situation, job loss, etc. My wife knows his eldest daughter, and she told my wife that the death certificate says that the cause of death was the C virus. COVID. She added that her dad did not have any cold or flu-like symptoms and was not physically ill in any way, but he was depressed. Regards, keep up the good work, David. So, so, so this is still going on? Well, it's still going on with just blatant lies in the completion of these death certificates because I'm absolutely sure that that uh, email will stand. And now we're being attacked by other sources. So thank you very much for somebody who picked up this. I think it was from ITN uh, News, uh, but they're showing a Ipsos Mori um, poll, 10th to the 20th of September. And if you look at the pink there, well, apparently the British public really support everything to do with uh, uh, the COVID. So we support local lockdown, 76%. Banning travel, we support that. Blanket curfews, we support that. Compl uh, closing restaurants, the majority support that. It's only when we get into other things. Well, a full national lockdown, only 44%. But we're in a full national lockdown, aren't we, Mike? More or less. More or less. Close all universities, well, 39% support that. Close all schools, only 34%. So this is, the, um, this is convincing the public by uh, showing us what we think. We don't know ourselves, so it takes Ipsos Mori to tell us what we think. And I'll just reinforce the statement we mentioned earlier that there are MPs now, being, uh, now starting to ask questions. This was the report in The Telegraph. More than 40 Tory bank benches back rebel bid to force votes on future lockdown measures. We need to get the names of these individuals and everybody, certainly everybody watching and listening to UK Column, needs to be writing to support those MPs. Um, OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Just very quickly on this one, another viewer picked up this when they were looking at RT, but a little message came up, said that UK, UK column viewers also watch this channel. Oh. So uh, I think somebody trying to undermine UK column. Um, uh, where's that coming from, Mike? Within oh, the algorithm, it's, it's yes. Yes, who's doing that? We don't <laughs> know, but we'll smile as we put it on screen. Uh, and we're delighted to say that at last, uh, the Northern Exposure section of the UK Column website is live. Uh, not too much content on there yet. We need to, we're, we're just fleshing that out at the moment, but all the recent Northern Exposure videos are on there. So do go there, it's ukcolumn.org slash northern dash exposure. David, just briefly, uh, uh, give us a couple of uh, recent interviews you've talked about. Yes, uh, one with uh, Samantha Baldwin uh, covering a very important case where the family courts have acted to, to remove her children and hand them over to the man that they accused of abusing them uh, in the most grievous and, and, and horrible ways, inc including Satanist ritual abuse. Um, and uh, this is part of a series of interviews covering her fight to uh, to protect our children uh, and also a follow-up to uh, the interview before with Kate Shemarani 
um, co covering her arrest, detention by the Met Police, and uh, her reflection on what has happened since at Trafalgar Square. So I hope people will look at both of those and uh, and 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 see. We've, I felt these were two very very important interviews uh, from two very brave women. Okay, and just uh, just some clarification, a correction from Friday's program. Uh, Patrick, put this graphic up uh, from the uh, from data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and this caused uh, quite a few of you a problem because, of course, uh, there is a typo on that. Uh, it should the middle column uh, should have said infection fatality ratio, uh, and there should have been no percentage uh, marks on the end of that particular column. Uh, and of course, once you, you look converting from a decimal ratio to a percentage, then those two columns in the middle and the right do make sense. Uh, but uh, that was a, a, a typo in the uh, rapidity of us pulling, pulling the stuff together on Friday. So do apologize for anybody that was confused uh, by that information. Uh, it was a ratio, not a rate for that middle column. Now, uh, everybody will be glad to know, uh, delightful uh, news, that uh, 10 million downloads of the Track and Trace app took place from since Thursday. So by uh, lunchtime on Sunday, there were over 10 million downloads. I have to say, sarcasm aside, uh, it's a bit pathetic, really. There's just so to put this in perspective, there's 74 million smartphones in the UK uh, as of 2019. Um, and uh, so 10 million, I think, isn't that much of a success for the government to claim, uh, although they are claiming it is a success. Um, the app, they say, forms a central part of uh, NHS Test and Trace Service in England uh, and, H and the NHS Wales Test, Trace and Protect programme. Um, so uh, 10 million isn't so good. Uh, but they then say that uh, it's really excellent news because 465,000 businesses um, have uh, implemented QR codes to work with this new app. Um, what they didn't uh, acknowledge in the press release was that, of course, that's now a legal requirement. So, of course, these businesses have implemented QR codes uh, because they're subject to multi-thousand pound fines, uh, potentially, if they get caught without implementing it. Um, so the government not being hugely honest there once again, David, uh, really because they're, they're suggesting that businesses were really on board. Yes, and it's, com it's compliance through coercion. Let's be, let's be quite clear about this. We're not threatening people with multi-thousand pound fines for nothing. It's because otherwise uh, the, the people will not believe this uh, scenario. Uh, now, uh, Vernon Coleman uh, has been in communications with the BBC, it seems. Well, he's been listening to the BBC. He doesn't do much of this, but it, but uh, he he did. He was he was tipped off to go and listen to the BBC, uh, and this is uh, what he heard. And part of an excellent um, address by Vernon Coleman. Once again, I encourage people to to seek out the whole thing. Every bit of it's worth listening to. But the piece I want to highlight here is what the BBC presenter Emma Barnett, BBC Five Live, twenty third September, twenty twenty, said, "Quote." We actually don't, as a matter of editorial policy, we actually don't debate with anti-vaxxers whether they are right or wrong. We actually don't do that. So uh, Vernon Coleman was making the point, this is the BBC admitting that they suppress scientific information in order to deceive the public into believing there is no debate. Um, we'll does beg, which, which, which begs the question, amongst all, begs many questions, one of them is, if people are fooled by this and um, 
get a vaccination for the child and their child is severely harmed or killed. To what extent is the BBC actually liable? Well, they're certainly fully culpable, but the BBC prided itself on closing down people who were trying to investigate child abuse. So they've just moved on to another topic. They are the propaganda arm of the British government. There's, there's no other way of describing the BBC. Uh, right, David, we're almost out of time, but let's just cover a couple more items here. Glasgow University feels like a prison. Uh, this has been a subject that the BBC has been covering quite a lot over the last couple of weeks, uh, because really the way students are being treated at the moment ain't so good. No, indeed not. So an article here by Harry Butcher and Spite, uh, he writes, even while writing this, the restrictions grow like an unwanted rash. The Scottish Chief Medical Officer, Chief Misery Officer Jason Leach has declared that seeing your own parents is no exception to the draconian ban on household visits. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon First Minister of Scotland has announced a ban on students going down the pub. Um, in a move unseen since Cromwell, UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock has openly mooted the idea of literally banning Christmas. And despite all we have been put through the media, and uh, we've been put through the media portrayals as our students as drunken louts, vessels of disease and squalor, best to be glared at from a distance, a selfish morass content to enjoy themselves at the expense of the elderly and the vulnerable. So this is how students are uh, seeing themselves. Um, the students are, in fact, not listening to Nicola Sturgeon uh, and her chief medical officer, and in fact, going home. So the rules are now being changed to make that okay, because we don't want to give the impression that you can get away with breaking the rules. So if everyone breaks the rules, we'll change the rules uh, so that no one's, no one's breaking them. Um, and uh, just quickly then, uh, new pol political parties on the offing. Yes, it's interesting here that the Conservative Party have once again proved that they can conserve nothing. Uh, in this case, they can't conserve our ancient liberties. And as a result, there's been several parties mooted to do the job that they are, they are failing to do. Lawrence Fox uh, has launched one, and um, this, this is, uh, has, has already gathered five million in donations, largely from former Conservative Party donors. Uh, who are abandoning, abandoning the Conservative Party. Um, so Lawrence Fox's party um, is called, oh, it's gone. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the name. Um, it'll come back to me in a moment. Uh, they're, they're there to fight the culture wars. They want to promote an open public space, um, protect fundamental freedoms of speech, expression and thought, reform publicly funded uh, institutions and preserve and celebrate our shared national history. So we're talking about a party to fight the culture war. Um, and uh, Nigel Farage also is uh, is looking to, to start a party amongst others. Yeah, he is indeed. Yes. So well, at least or at least he's saying he's not ruling it out. Uh, and this is the European, uh, the new European a pro EU uh, publication, Nigel Farage considering new anti lockdown party to rival Lawrence Fox's efforts. So they're actually uh, suggesting that he's uh, starting this in order to try to uh, counteract something that Lawrence Fox is doing. And, and maybe we've seen this from Nigel Farage in the past. Well, maybe, yes. Is this, is this helpful or, or actually a hindrance? Because, of course, if we have a multitude of such parties, maybe none will, will, will thrive. But what we actually need at this point, I would suggest, is the death of the, the, of the Conservative Party. You know, you know the name? I do. <laughs> yes, apparently the um, uh, Mr. Fox's party is going to be called uh, Reclaim, but that's a provisional name. 
Yeah, okay. I'm uh, just going to pop this one up on the screen and ask for a bit of help, but a Sharp Eye viewer said that they'd seen Julia Hartley Brewer doing an interview with Grant Shapps, and I think this was on or around the 21st of September, but they looked over his shoulder and said, what exactly are we looking at there? I'll just bring this up on screen. Um, has anybody any idea what, what this, the flag is? What the flag is. Um, David, I don't know whether you know, but I looked at it and I thought, well, it looks like something out of similar. Well, it's a bit Nazi to me. It's a bit dark. It's black and red. Um, I noticed the placed books on the shelf, how, how to do good better and Chris Patton, East and West. So there was a nice bit of product placement there. But what is the flag? Um, it looks like something out of 1984. No idea. Don't recognize that at all. Well, if any of the viewers can help, we'd like to know. Um, and David, we'll just end on uh, on this little thought. Yes, I like this. A final meme to finish the day. If you're wearing a mask inside of your car, I'm going to go ahead and assume it's to control the urge to lick the windows. I don't think there's much more we could say about that. <laughs> no, but uh, it's uh, accurate, if nothing else. Yeah. If nothing else, well, we'll end there, end of today's news. We're in very, very dangerous times in the United Kingdom. So for people living in the country, it is time to take action, get writing those letters, send those emails, challenge the MPs, uh, support and encourage the ones who are starting to stand up. And if you want to ensure that uh, totally lawful demonstrations go ahead, you need to be on the case of uh, Crusader Dick and uh, Mr. Khan, and that needs to happen on an hourly, daily basis. It's not enough to be sat at home just watching the UK column news. So a bit of a push from us. We will be back at the same time on Wednesday. Wednesday. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.